Rise as you are able for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a while longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you speak into our hearts this morning, that you fill us with peace, that you give us the courage to remove any hindrances to you in our hearts and wherever we see them in the world. Oh God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. The 1990s were a time of unprecedented change around our world, as I'm sure many of you remember. I vaguely remember. It was a time of unprecedented change, especially for the nation of South Africa. Haunted by the specter of colonization, apartheid, the separation of black and white people based on false racial assumptions, was deeply embedded into the cultural norms there. But times were changing. In 1990, Nelson Mandela, a key leader in the African National Congress, a, a group, a party that worked to end segregation, he was released from prison after 27 years. In 1994, the country had its first truly free election, in which all people, regardless of race, were allowed to vote. Mandela was elected president, and the era of apartheid came to an end, thanks be to God. And while this was celebrated by many throughout the world, a serious problem remained. What were the South Africans, both black and white, what were they to do with all of that emotional and spiritual and physical trauma that they had endured under apartheid? How could there be a path forward in unity when there was so much hurt? How could justice flourish in a place where, for so long, injustice had been the norm? In 1996, Nelson Mandela and his advisor, an Anglican archbishop by the name of Desmond Tutu, created what they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This commission issued an open call to receive testimony, both from those who were hurt by apartheid and from those who had perpetuated the injustice. Those they called upon were given a chance to ask for forgiveness, to hear one another's testimony and to grant forgiveness. Now sadly, not all who were summoned responded, and not all who responded made that ask, but those who did reported that this truth-telling, this act of asking for and receiving forgiveness was deeply transformative. See, only by wrestling with the truth, by looking it full in the face, by acknowledging it, could forgiveness begin to take root 
and heal. Reflecting on that experience, Desmond Tutu wrote this years later in a book. We are reminded that God's love is not cut off from anyone. However diabolical the act, it does not make the perpetrator into a demon. What's perhaps most striking about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think, is how unusual and countercultural the logic it used was. You see, overwhelmingly, we humans across different cultures, across different eras, have relied upon a notion of justice that's based on retribution, right? The idea that when someone wrongs you, they must receive a just and an equitable payment in exchange. This is why we think about the symbol of justice being those balanced scales, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in the language of the Old Testament. Instead, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu were deeply influenced by a more biblical teaching about justice, by what is called restorative justice. You see, where retributive justice often continues cycles of hurt and injustice, paying back that payment just creates more hurt and brokenness, which leads to more hurt and brokenness. Restorative justice instead seeks to restore both the victim and the perpetrator to wholeness recognizing that in most cases, all involved act out of their own past hurt and brokenness. And what's most scandalous about this type of justice is that it calls us to lay down our claims to retribution. It it calls us to challenge the dominant conceptions of justice in our culture, and it's exactly this countercultural idea of restoration and of reconciliation that's fueled some of the most powerful movements in history. Think of Mahatma Gandhi in India, or Martin Luther King Jr. here in the United States, or Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in Judea. The point I want to arrive at is this. Sometimes the gospel, sometimes the good news of Jesus calls upon us to turn our cultural assumptions on their heads. Sometimes it means that in order to break the cycles of sin and live into the new life that Christ offers to each of us, we must go against the flow of culture. We must go against even some of those values we were raised with. We find an example of what this resurrection turn looks like in our reading this morning from Acts 11. Upon returning from the Spirit's call to baptize some of the first Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, Peter returns to Jerusalem under heavy criticism from his fellow disciples and apostles even. And their question to him basically amounts this. How could you go against everything we have ever been taught? How could you go against our norms, our laws, and our values? How could you eat those things? How could you have fellowship with those people? Why, Peter? Peter then lays out his his testimony in precise detail. You see, what was at stake was the Old Testament law. He describes a bizarre-sounding vision and an argument that he has with God. Peter likes to argue with God. How he himself was held up by his commitment to the letter of the law, arguing against God's own call and command to extend the gospel to Gentiles. Peter eventually loses this argument, thanks be to God, and concedes to God's call. This is, you know, why we're all here today, most of us at least. He visits a man named Cornelius in his household and In the visit, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that same Holy Spirit that came upon the apostles at Pentecost, and Peter then presents his rhetorical trump card to those who would question him. 
Who was I that I could hinder God? Who was I that I could hinder God? This question silenced those first apostles criticizing Peter, and we should let it silence us as well from time to time. You see, in each and every one of our hearts, we like to put up barriers and obstacles for God's love and grace to work in our world. Each and every one of us, you see, feels the allure and the pressure to conform to social and cultural norms, even if we know them to be unjust, even if we know them to miss the mark of the gospel. Like those apostles and like Peter at the start of his story arguing with God, we all live by things, we are all influenced by things that hinder God and the full flourishing of God's love in our world. And yet the good news of Easter is that God's love doesn't seek retribution. It strives after restoration. The story doesn't just end with the cross. It ends with the resurrection in new life. In the resurrection, in that empty tomb, we see that God's love is bigger. God's love is more powerful, more influential than anything that might begin to think to have the thought to hold it back. It conquers even death. It can certainly breathe healing and abundance, reconciliation and restoration into each and to every one of us into, and into our communities. And with this, we turn to our gospel. John 13, Christ speaks to his disciples, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. We can't miss the context of these words because they lose, it loses their power. These words come during the Last Supper, right before Jesus is arrested unjustly tried and crucified. After naming Judas as his betrayer and going so far as to even wash his feet, then and only then do we get this commandment to love each other. Sisters and brothers, siblings in Christ, this is what Christian love looks like. It seeks to heal even those who would hurt and betray us. It never desires retribution, but it always works towards resurrection, even despite all of those obstacles that we like to set up that hinder God, be they within us or outside of us. One of the things that's really sat with me this week as I've thought about this text, as I've thought about this new commandment to love each other is that for us to truly live into it, we have to see ourselves as worthy of love. I'll say that again because it's important. We have to see ourselves as worthy of love. We have to be open to receiving love from God and from one another. You see, without this vulnerability, we can't hope to live into Jesus' command. To love one another, we have to be ready to be loved. This is, after all, what we were created for, not just to love God and to love one another, but also to be loved by God and to be loved by one another. I think this is important to say because maybe the biggest obstacle that hinders God in our world today is this insidious notion lurking everywhere in our culture that we are not enough. We're not smart enough. We're not funny enough or wealthy enough or beautiful enough. We're not, this is a big one these days, we're not unique enough. We're not good enough to be loved and to be valued. This is a lie. And it's a lie that the world loves to tell us over and over again, but because it keeps us from experiencing the fullness 
of God's love. It keeps us broken and divided, fractured within ourselves and among ourselves. And so again, we must ask ourselves the question that St. Peter asked to those disciples. Who are we that we can hinder God? You see, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter how you even feel about yourself in any given moment, you cannot stop God's love for you. The resurrection proves it. Much like a light switch has to be turned on to give light and power, energy to a room, we complete the resurrection circuit of God's love only when we accept this undeniable truth that God loves us. Only then do we live into God's abundance. Only then do we break free of the world's scarcity mindset. Only then can we go out and transform the world. You see, this love thing that we keep talking about over and over again, it's mutual. And without doing it mutually, we're not doing it at all. So siblings in Christ, I, I want to close this morning with a brief message to our graduates gathered today. You see, I've been troubled in recent weeks by the string of suicides among successful college athletes. You may have heard these stories in the news over the, over the past few months. There have been these big stories. And these are individuals who we would say have been very successful, who have made it, who are living their dream, doing their college sport, doing what we all would hope to do. But the shadow side of that success that folks don't often acknowledge is the overwhelming pressure to perform. And it's not just in athletics, right? Mental health concerns among young people are at an all-time high. I guarantee you, if you know a young person, you know a young person who has struggled with doubt, with anxiety, with depression. Every young person, I think, feels that unsettling pressure to perform in the classroom, on the field, in your social circles. I think this is because we live in a time of unparalleled comparison and competition and also a time of great profound emptiness, that great lie that I mentioned before. Well, look in your pocket. The world has so many more opportunities to tell you that you are not enough. It lies behind the scenes of nearly every social media post. It lies behind that temptation that we all have to overthink every single one of our texts and other messages. It, it lies behind that pressure to maintain your streaks on Snapchat. It lies behind every single advertisement that we consume. For many of us, it's the first thing that we see when we wake up in the morning, and it's the last thing that we put down before we lay our heads. Recent research by the insurance firm Cigna done in 2018 suggests that Generation Z is the loneliest of all generations. That for all their connectedness, they are less connected than ever before. And yet, dear siblings, and especially graduates, I want to challenge you with this question. Who are we to hinder the God who creates us as good, who calls and names us as beloved? I encourage us all, as we go out this week, to when we see those cultural temptations that tell us that we aren't enough, I encourage you to complete that resurrection circuit of God's love, to trust and to rest in the deep truth that you are loved for who you are, that you are enough, and that you belong to Christ. 
even in your moments of deep hurt and brokenness, and make no mistake, they will come. This love can redeem and restore you. This love can breathe new life into you. This love can work reconciliation in your broken relationships. This love can bring you newness, even in those moments of hurt. We've got an empty tomb to prove it. Amen.